Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. All right, well, welcome back to Micromobility, um, and today we have with us uh, Horace. How are you going, Horace? Hello, hello. Greetings from uh, <laughs> greetings from Zurich, Switzerland. Excellent. And we have with us uh, uh, Winston Kwan. Hi. How are you going today, Winston? <laughs> oh, great, great. And uh, greetings from Edinburgh, Scotland. Excellent. And I'm in Auckland, New Zealand. We're sort of we're we're strung out all over the world at this stage. It's, uh, this is as as is want to be the case normally. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, um, I, I know that uh, Horace uh, and Winston, you guys met at the Micromobility Summit. Is that uh, correct? That's right, at Copenhagen. It was, uh, it was a really right. interesting, intense session there. Yes, and Winston was actually, uh, uh, he came up on, on stage for a panel session. Um, I also, I was sort of inspired by his work and... Um, uh, he maybe maybe Winston, you can do a quick introduction for for the audience and on uh, you you you're you're a professor. Is, yes, is that at correct? the University of Edinburgh Business School, and uh, my main area of uh, research and also teaching is on social innovation. So social innovation is basically about ways of addressing the problem of social exclusion in ways that aren't say the typical state response or um, or strictly private sector response. It's about different hybrid ways of approaching social exclusion. It's just the lack of access to yep. different things such as public services, education, um, infrastructure, and whatnot. Well, one, one thing before we dive into your work, I, I, I wanted to also mention one thing because there's a gentleman by the name of Alex Roy He's quite a character. <laughs> I actually was on a on a podcast with him recently, uh, the Autona cast. Um, and but but Al- Alex and I met a couple of times, uh, and he has this idea called universal basic mobility. And the idea that he's putting forward and it's just a very recent idea uh, was spun out of the idea of universal basic income. He believes in, in sort of micro mobility as a part of a spectrum of mobility. I, I was taken to, by, by his idea that we should think about mobility as a human right. And, and in so doing, you have to rethink how to provide it and, um, and, and how choices around vehicles and infrastructure exclude others. Anyway, mm-hmm. welcome to the show, Winston. So tell us what should, <laughs> what should we think about? Uh, Okay, I've been thinking about the, the, the social implications of micromobility, and it just goes everywhere. We're just on the cusp of something really significant. Uh, in, in a lot of my research, I've been looking at this problem of um, social exclusion, of the breakdown of traditional communities. And time and time again, I come across uh, this concept. Um, it's quite known, well known among sociologists. It's called uh, social capital. Mm-hmm. And uh, social capital is what we talk about when we're talking about effectively functioning social groups, uh, interpersonal relationships, shared identity, shared understanding, shared norms, social values. Uh, These are trust, cooperation, reciprocity. These are all things that 
even today in the current political climate we see breaking down. Now, if we go back into this problem of declining social capital, one of the things that comes up time and time again, the underlying factor is the car. And it's how we've created our entire built environment, our urban centers around cars. Mm -hmm. And the car has led to this breakdown in social capital. Interesting. Uh, you're not the first. I think the many city planners who see that their city has been, become, uh, as, as one says, um, filled with sewers for cars. So the idea of the, the roads and infrastructure is there only to flush away or bring in um, the plumbing for cars. You have to have storage for them as they, as they pile in. Uh, you have to drain them out. And in so doing, you're actually excluding what the city uh, itself is, which is, you know, a, a living space um, and a, a space for others to, to interact. The logic of this flow of traffic as a city's core essence um, came because of before it, they, they were very um, congested with, with people that, that, that were in mobile. And there was a lot of, um, you know, the tenements. A lot of the car was a reaction. If you watch a 1950s show called The Honeymooners, there was a dream of a family living in, a, in an apartment building to go to the suburbs. That was, that was their escape from what they felt was so suffocating. But we now have created these, these giant uh, uh, concrete obstacles, not just enabling... Uh, freedom, but actually destroying fiber of society. And somehow we have to find a balance. You mentioned a little bit a few moments ago about uh, Alex Roy, who talks about, uh, what was it, universal basic mobility. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, my take on that would be, yes, I, I do think that that's an essential uh, basic right uh, of people. But the problem is that what we've done is we've privileged the automobile over every other form of transportation, including public transport. I mean, I, I'm an avid cyclist and on streets, my life or my existence is at the margins. It's always making allowance for automobiles. Mm -hmm. The problem is that it's the automobile to the exclusion of every single other mode of transport. And that's where I think micromobility represents an incredible opportunity to change the way we look at can cities. I to, can I get you to unpack, there's a term mobility poverty. And, uh, and I'd love for you to just talk through how, how, you, how you conceive of that and think about it. And then why specifically micromobility and how are you thinking of micromobility in those terms? Is it, is it vehicles? Is it the sharing? Is it the networks? Is it, you know, just um, how, you know, how does that manifest? Okay, well, well, to get into this, I, I, I sort of wanted to unpack this a bit and say, well, the problem with cities, you know, you talked about sewers for cars. Most cities are built at what you call a superhuman scale, okay? So in a, in a city, we'll, and especially modern planning approaches, we look at separating all these functions. We have the commercial district, we have the residential district, and so we actually create a need 
to have to travel a long way just to get to do different things. You have to go here for work. You have to go out there for yeah, school. Yeah, the modularity, the modularity concept, because th- this comes up as well. You know, we take it for granted that we have zoning. Oh, so you cannot have, you know, an office in a, in a, in, a, in this area, and you cannot have a house in this area. You cannot have a, a restaurant in this area. It's kind of a very interesting idea that and it didn't exist historically. I mean, when you look at city centers in old cities in Europe, I mean, they're all basically mixed up, right? I mean, and, and, and so this question of, of, of why do you modularize cities, I think is a result of transportation. Is, 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 that, is that what you're suggesting? It, yes, we've, we've done that because we can. Mm. Um, it's the automobile that made it possible. And we've kind of stuck to this modern model. I mean, you talk about all these old cities, especially in all around Europe. And also, I'd, I'd argue that the, some, the city cores in a lot of North America, the parts that were built pre-automobile are the yep. ones that are most diverse, heterogeneous. You have this mixed use. And, they're, and those are the areas that are most walkable they're mo- the most conducive for micromobility yeah if 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 yeah, if you take the north america i mean just the united states if you go east coast versus west coast for example boston seattle i've lived in both boston is is um well of course pre pre car urban boston was was a very interesting development it, it it grew up over time back bay which is a part of boston that is built on landfill of the Charles River is a grid system which is clearly modern but still pre-car and that has brownstones and and sort of uh, uh, the 19th century kind of housing but uh, you know it's very mixed uh, as you said and very walkable still and um, in contrast Seattle is a very modern city it's no more than a hundred years old and it's all post-automobile and there's huge residential areas. There's no, there's no businesses or nothing else to do there. And they have the concept of urban villages, which are clusters of businesses, usually at some sort of intersections, uh, which then make up um, a commercial area. And then these villages are in a sea of housing, which is you know, suburban style, single family. But that means you can't really walk anywhere. Everyone in Seattle needs to drive. Actually, it's interesting you raise the, um, the example of Seattle because Seattle is one of those cities that actually has been gutted by the um, highway works of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for instance, uh, I-5 runs right through the middle of Seattle. And that's been instrumental in basically making so much of the inner city uncomfortable because you have these massive elevated highways running through. Uh, But if you look at a lot of other cities, in fact, in Boston, where you see a lot of the highway projects having stopped in the 19 late 60s, early 70s, there's an interesting story about that. Um, What had happened was, um, you know, if you noticed uh, most of these highway works going through cities had stopped in the 60s, a lot of that was down to an urban activist and journalist uh, named Jane Jacobs. Uh, There was a New York city planner named Robert Moses, and his plan was to run highways all the way through New York. And 
most residents, especially the ones whose houses had to be demolished to make way for the freeway, objected. Now, Jane Jacobs was one of the main people behind those protests. And through her activism, she ended up stopping those projects. Now, as an interesting side note from that, it was um, also during the Vietnam War. And given that her sons were approaching draft age, she ended up moving to Toronto. And she ended up doing the same movement. In She uh, stopped what's known as a Spadina Expressway from crudding right through the city centre. So as a result, you know, you, you can actually directly credit her with saving New York, saving Toronto. She gave people the tools, the methods to oppose freeway work all across North America. Yeah, I read a book called The Big Roads, which actually gets into both the construction of the interstate highway system, but also the opposition to that, which, which occurred during the 60s. And as a result, some cities ended up with urban superhighways and their character is affected by it. And then some cities sort of went in halfway and it was stopped before it completed. One example I have about Boston is that there is the 93 um, interstate, which goes right through the city center. And now that has been put underground it was a 20-year process to to bury it. Anyway, let's not go too far down that but road. Joe, Oliver, you, know, you talked a bit earlier about the concept of mobility. Yeah, poverty. I thought we'd jump back into that. And I want to also just, just really unpack that. The, is it low-cost transport that you're excited about in micromobility or the sort of like the social inclusion nature of it as well? Well, okay, well, let's, let's start with a definition of mobility poverty. Now, the problem is if you actually try to figure out or look up mobility poverty on Google, you'll get this idea of social mobility from poverty, which is not that. It's not about social mobility. It's, it's similar to um, Alex Roy's concept about the basic right to mobility. What I define it is is how the lack of access to effective mobility affects an individual's economic and social opportunities. So it's about the lack of mobility affects your ability to, to get and hold down a decent job. It's about the lack of um, uh, opportunity to socialize with friends, family, who are essential to your well-being. The problem here is that mobility poverty has been exacerbated or even come out of car-centric design so, for example, one of the things we've seen, especially this movement towards gentrification, is this switching between the suburbs and the inner cities. I mean, if we go back now to the, we're talking about the highway era of the 60s and the 70s, the biggest areas of social deprivation were the inner cities, right? And people in the middle class all fled and went out to the suburbs. Now, of course, we come back now to where we are today, and that's... Well, in many cases, that's actually reversed. What we see is we have gentrified inner cities, lots of professionals located in the cities. And now we see a significant amount of social deprivation in those suburbs. Now, a lot of that is has to do with um, how we actually got there. These places, because they were built around a car-centric ideal, um, they're hard to walk because the distances are so long. I mean, you think about the typical suburb. You've got these winding, meandering uh, streets. All these design characteristics actually lengthen the distance it takes to get from one side to another. 
Now, as a result, you also have very infrequent um, bus and other transit services because the density just isn't justified. So you don't, so the buses are infrequent. So a lot of times the only way to get in and out, of course, it's about having a car. Now, the, the problem with this now is how did the social deprivation occur in the suburbs? Well, what happened is, imagine most of these suburbs are what, 40, 50 years old now. I mean, the big suburb building boom was 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Now, think about it this way. In a city, a city is highly heterogeneous, right? Especially the inner city. Things were built at different times. You have stuff that built in, you know, maybe before the car, you have stuff built later. And when these things happen, there's all different parts of the infrastructure were put in at different times. They break down at different times, but when they break down, they're maintained, they're serviced, they're fixed, they're replaced. Now, a suburb's an interesting thing because it's a single homogeneous development, often by a single developer or several developers working in concert. But if you build everything at once, it's all engineered for a given lifespan. You know, it's a bit like a car. You build a car, it's got a certain lifespan. It gets to a point where everything starts to go at the same time. The transmission goes, the clutch goes, uh, the body starts to rust. Now, suburbs are the same way. Things start to break down all at the same time. You know, concrete has a certain lifespan. The underground infrastructure, the sewers and everything else has a certain lifespan. Now, what's happened is that over this time, you've had a lot of uh, the more socially mobile people that initially lived in those suburbs return to the city. And so you've had this phenomenon, a lot of people being left behind. And so you have this decline in suburbs. Now, so you have this combination of really aging infrastructure, and you also have this combination of uh, falling averages in terms of, uh, you know, average income in these areas. Yep. So you actually have a shrinking tax base. I, I had envisioned, and not for, for, for all these specific reasons, but I had this envision, envisioned a sort of a, few, a dystopian future of, of suburban ghost towns um, and the notion that gentrification and consolidation around cities would, 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 would cause the, the suburbs to be abandoned or at least their tax base to wither. And, and, and because of infrastructure, as you point out, much more specifically than I would have thought, then you, you have this uh, vicious cycle of, uh, of flight of, of, of earners um, and families flying, fleeing the suburbs while while um, the costs are, are are exploding, and so you have potential you know entire communities abandoned. Plus the death of the mall for all their flaws, at least provided also some form of income to to sustain this because business income in suburbs was was very sparse, right? Um, so I think that's a very very interesting point. And the question then is: Micromobility salvation for suburbs, or or are they doomed? You think about the connection between mobility poverty and the subprime auto market. If you're stuck in the suburbs, in some of these suburban pockets, um, with very poor transit connections, the only way you're going to do things like get your kids to school, get to work, buy groceries in a meaningful span of time, is to have a car. And if you don't have enough money, the only way you can get a car is through a subprime auto loan, which is, you know, anywhere between, what, 10 to 20%. And so you're stuck on this vicious treadmill of all your earnings having to go to pay for this car. 
at extortionate interest rates. And so what's the role of micromobility? I think micromobility can be something... I, I, I don't think all suburbs of, of these suburban areas are savable, but I think some are. And those are the ones where micromobility would be adequate enough to be a last mile solution to link to effective transit links. It's not more than mile. I sort of I, I, I'm a little irritated by this last mile thinking because sometimes it's the last five miles. It's it's the last ten miles. There's a lot more miles that micromobility can cover than than the one. Um, and that's you know that's the hope I think that we can see a way forward for you know I think of it as efficient. I think of it as not having the weight and the mass of a, of a, of a vehicle that weighs twenty times its payload, um, that that that's just going to be intolerable. But what you're saying is mostly that it's going to bring down costs, which I think it does because of efficiency. But as a result, you may have uh, a basic level of mobility at, at what amounts to let's say less than ten cents a mile. And, and that's about one-fifth of the average cost of, of transport by, by car. Depends on the vehicle, depends on the place. But the IRS in the U- U.S. assumes it's 50 cents a mile for, for purpose of, of deduction uh, of, of that expense. So um, micromobility, because of efficiency, again, is the premise is that it could be, um, it could be pennies per mile. And, and as a result, you might be able to provide it even free to some people because it allows for social um, uh, cohesion. Mm, two, two things here. One is I'm aware that Uber just rolled out a $25 subscription for, for Jump. So the Uber bike uh, and scooter services in, in, in Los Angeles. And it's meant to be unlimited use. So it's, you know, all of a sudden provides an alternative so it's twenty five yeah. per month. It's a tr- per they're trialing right? at the moment, but it's yeah, it would be. Yeah, I would have I would have thought thirty is a reasonable number because it goes down to the dollar a day, but that's um, you know unlimited the dollar a day sort of thing. It's like we have computing now is working on the basis of a dollar a yeah. day. Sorry, uh, but if you look at mobility, if we talked about these cases of, for instance, the subprime auto market. The competition for micromobility are these ridiculous subprime auto loans. If you can create situations mm. where instead of having to pay hundreds of dollars a month just to pay for your car, in, instead if you can get into a situation where you have a scooter, you know, how much is a, an e-scooter, for example? It's about, what, a thousand bucks more or less? Or, yeah, or no, if you even, have access yeah. to shared scooter services, what it does is it actually lowers the threshold and actually makes walking again. I mean, you know, if you look at what transport planners, they have a threshold for walking on average. The average person's willing to walk, I think, somewhere around five minutes or so, um, five, ten minutes. And so the threshold for walking is generally considered to be roughly about 400 to 1,000 meters. So beyond that, if you're talking about just walkability, the threshold you know, drops off quickly. Now, a very relatively conservative threshold in terms of the way a neighborhood's constructed for cycling is roughly now be- between, you know, anywhere up to uh, 1.6 kilometers, probably around a mile. So what it does is, um, you know, in a lot of cases, you'll have a suburb where the nearest transit link is, what, a mile away or 
two miles away or three miles away. And I think that's where that last mile terminology comes from. But the point is that it makes it so much more viable now to, to skip the car. Before, I want to talk about multimodality and how we can solve the puzzle, not just with one mode being introduced by multiple ones. And so before we do that, I want to, I want to actually take some time to, to, to talk about our sponsor. This is our first sponsor for Micromobility Podcast. So we're very proud to have them on board. And it's Joyride. Uh, if you, you know, Joyride is a platform. So it, it, here's how we, we, we want to think about it is if you ever thought of starting your own bike or scooter share system, uh, you know, you probably decided on the vehicle you want and found the city you want to launch in. And now you'll need to build an app and the back end system to manage the fleet and, and, and the, the users. And then you'll need to, com- you know, complete the hardware integration, probably customizing your vehicles maybe more than one vehicle type. Uh, you've priced out all this R&D work and engineering work, and then you'll need probably six to eight months to develop it at least. So with 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 the market moving the way it is, and local operators are constantly coming in, uh, you really don't have six or eight months. So that's where Joyride comes in. Joyride is a mo- mobility platform that lets operators launch a scooter or bike share uh, fleet fast and under your own brand. Joyride offers a custom and elegant mobile app for riders. So you've got the app and you've got a powerful backend for fleet management to track and manage payments and to track vehicles. And to generate even, even more revenue, you'll use Joyride to advertise with your local partners and affiliates. All of this is combined with features like custom pricing, promos, parking, and much more. You can even connect scooter share and bike share in the same app, this multimodality that we speak of. With a hardware agnostic platform like Joyride, you'll also, you also won't be tied into any specific hardware supply chain or price. Plus, Joyride partners with the most recognized brands in the business, so you'll be sure to have the best scooters and the ba- best bike locks in the market. So with customers across 10 countries and four continents, using Joyride's proven platform, you, you can do so with confidence. It doesn't matter if you're a startup or a transit agency. Joyride allows you to compete in the exploding mobility market, or I would say exploding micro-mobility market. Uh, with transparent, transparent and affordable pricing, it's easier than ever to start your own micro-mobility business. So start your own scooter or bike share system today. See more at www.joyride.city. That's joyride.city. Make sure to mention the Micromobility Podcast via the contact form on the website or when you call, uh, so you will receive your first month for free. So thank you for to Joyride for supporting 5x5 and Micromobility. Isn't that wonderful? That sounds like such a great solution out there that you can start your own Micromobility uh, service uh, with a turnkey software solution. I think that's fascinating. Uh, so yeah, um, I, when I saw that they were sponsoring us, I thought, oh, that's a really interesting uh, point that tech can now be put up as a service. It's uh, it'll. I, I think it lowers the barriers to entry in terms of trying to develop your own. Yes, it's a, and it's almost like a franchise model. One of the things I've struggled with um, when trying to measure this market, I and I'm still struggling, but I, I have some updates, by the way, and we'll we'll see these at the at the micro mobility conference. 
in, uh, in California. Don't forget that's January 31st. Sign up at micromobility.io. Um, we have a, we have, we should mention we have our, our, um, what's our discount code? I think it, it was, I think it was Oliver and Horace was, uh, Oh, Oliver and Horace. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, so yes, that's our, that's our, use that to get a, a significant discount. But uh, yeah, uh, so I was saying uh, we have an update on the, the, the addressable market and it's tremendous. I, I believe half the driven miles can be substituted with micromobility. It doesn't mean they will be, but it's certainly possible that half the driven miles can be converted because they're all going to be short distance miles. They are short distance miles. And um, as a result, what is the number of driven miles? I've been focused on the United States, but now I have global data. And it, the global data and miles, passion to miles is about 14 trillion. That's trillion, 14 trillion, 14 thousand billion 14 million million is the way to think about it 14 million million miles um globally uh on a yearly basis now when i thought about actually delivering that sort of uh well half of that would be seven even half of that would be three and a half trillion miles you know when you think about delivering that it's not going to be one company who does it and a lot of it will be local businesses uh that will do this i i, I believe that micro micro mobility enables much more of a, a sort of a local uh, business model as opposed to a, as one provider for the entire world. Can you imagine one company providing mobility globally? That would be that would be frightening. Um, but but in well, that's something I've heard from others is that one characteristic of micromobility is it doesn't have the same network effects. That's right. That you find in a yes. lot of other People technology say that industries. There are no network effects. Um, I think there might be some on this layer, like like we see where Joyride comes in, that there might be some software layers that are more easily provided globally. Um, but as far as operationally, now one other thing to point point out is that the 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 communication business has not become a global service business because you have local operators, even if they're nationwide, as in the case of the U.S. Or even in Europe, where you have sort of pan-European networks like Vodafone, it's still fundamentally a local business. Retail is a local business. As much as Amazon wishes to be sort of the global retailer, they're still quite spotty in terms of where they are globally. And there's a lot of other things you can look at, even energy itself, energy transport and energy provisioning. Although you have a couple of big oil companies, a lot of the retail around gasoline, for example, is a local business. Um, and so there's, there's, there's something about the, f the physicality of transport um, and the physicality of cellular networks. You need the cellular antennas, and those require permits, and those require real estate, and those require local service uh, uh, provision and support. And all of these tend to localize. And that, that's why... In many ways, the the you know as the auto industry is globalized, I think the micromobility industry will localize transportation to a large extent. So there's another factor though that influences that, and it's because micromobility, because we're not talking about cars with massive amounts of horsepower, micromobility are relatively low powered vehicles. So actually, you're talking about the vagaries and variations in terrain in terms of elevation, you know, going up hills, and also just the social context, the infrastructural context. So 
Micromobility is so context-specific. Different cities, different countries have different situations. And as a result, that further, I think, makes the local important. And it actually diminishes the network effects past, past a certain point. Let me give point. you an idea, by the way, about the power. Just This is a calculation you can make. An average small car has about 100 horsepower. This is your typical Toyota Corolla type of engine, nothing like a V8 or a V6. And, and that horsepower has been going up over time. So a lot of cars in the U.S. maybe are even 200 horsepower, which is way over what you might need. But the idea of an electric micro vehicle, like in Europe right now, I'm, I'm here in Switzerland riding around on a 500-watt electric bike and 500 watts is actually a huge amount of power for an electric bike many are 250 watts you have a battery capacity of about 300 to 1000 uh, watt hours um, and that's all you need for an electric bike now to give you this is in watts to give you the idea in horsepower 745 watts equals one horsepower so the, this bike I have, which is probably the fastest thing in the city right now because I can zip around, you know, at 45 kilometers an hour and go up, up hills as if they didn't exist, that is only, uh, uh, you know, two-thirds of one horsepower. So the, the idea that, you know, a scooter, by the way, is probably around 150 to 200 watts. You know, that means it's one-fifth probably of one horsepower. And that's all you need. That's all you need to get a, one person weighing up to 100 kilograms moving around the city. You don't, you don't need 100 horsepower. You don't need 150 horsepower. You don't need that. And so in many ways, it, it, it democratizes. It, it, um, it brings the, the efficiency so much higher and the cost so much lower that it might change fundamentally a lot of the social issues that we face. This is what's fascinating. You know, we don't usually spend time on the show. We haven't yet until today thinking about the social implications. For me, that's just sort of out there, and I hope, you know, the results are positive. It's, you just can't imagine what they will be. But just dipping your toe in the water, you start to imagine what could happen. And, and of course, I think, Winston, you're just educating us on, on how we got to where we are. And... Um, and it's fascinating. Any of this makes sense to you? I mean, yeah, I, I actually I do very much like that term, the democratization of uh, mobility. I have heard of research that talked about how the introduction of uh, of uh, bike lanes, for example, into relatively poor neighborhoods actually had a substantial economic impact on those neighborhoods. Because people who normally couldn't find work in other places because of those bike lanes, because the cost of a bicycle is just a, a tiny fraction of what a car costs, they could actually get to work. Mm. They could actually find work. Yeah, by the way, a human so, being, just a, a quick note on that horsepower figure, a human being can output sustained about 60 watts. If you're an athlete, you can maybe put out 200 watts. Uh, so, so it's amazing because of a bicycle... 60 watts will get you around almost anywhere, you know, reasonably fast. And again, um, the idea of an e-bike is you multiply, you amplify it by a factor of 10. You go from 60 to, you know, almost 600, let's say, you know, 50 to 500. You go up of, of an order of magnitude, and that, uh, that actually helps you because you, you flatten hills and you accelerate more quickly so you can stop more frequently. You don't feel bad about stopping as much. 
because you don't lose momentum and, and therefore have to regain it. Um, but all of these things, we realize that the, at the scale we're dealing with, from 60 to 600 watts versus, you know, uh, what is essentially 7,000 and above, which is 100 horsepower. And, um, and that's, that's just phenomenal to me that it, it, as, as a sort of a, as an engineer, I, I fixate on these numbers, but the social implications, and you said one thing about bike lanes also is it's also good business. You know, you, you teach at a business school. I went to business school and, you know, we have to take into account that the, the economics are tied with, with social, uh, factors and the economics of, Bike lanes is fascinating. I think the studies have shown that in New York, when a bike lane is introduced in a neighborhood, the shops, as opposed to losing the parking spaces, which you know were, were the cause of concern that the parking losses would lead to less shoppers, but they've actually seen an increase in sales uh, for shops along bike routes because a bike, well, you can stop easily, you know, and and if you lose two spots of parking. You more than make up for it by hundreds of new visitors that could pass in front of your store and stop at any moment's notice. So I think it's actually good for business. It's good for accessibility, for mobility as far as um, individuals being able to move, which, which would have been constrained by the car. There's one, there's one point in there, uh, Winston, which I'd love for you to unpack, which is you talk about micromobility from a cost perspective, but there's also an aspect around it, which is like typically these are vehicles that are, as you say, bikes, scooters, etc., where humans typically are out in the open. And I would love for you to talk to the ability of um, the rider to be able to interact with their natural environment a little bit more. If you recall back in Copenhagen, uh, in the micromobility summit uh, there, what was it, last month, uh, there was a speaker on uh, the scooter sharing uh, situation in the States, uh, Michael... Michael, Michael Naka. I, I was fascinated by it, but I just... And I remember asking him the question, what, are, what job are people hiring scooters to do? And I, I didn't quite fully understand it. I've read, I'd read about it, but it still didn't... I still couldn't fully process it. Now... Uh, as I mentioned a bit earlier, a few weeks ago, I went back to Vancouver to visit uh, family. And I, I decided I'm going to take a side trip to the States. And so I was actually quite interested in seeing, experiencing these uh, e-scooters. So I went down to Portland. Now, to me, taking it, so I tried, I think, a uh, both a Lime scooter as well as a Lyft scooter in a couple of days of zipping around Portland. Now, I'll have to say that was a revelation. I didn't understand it. It's one of those things that you almost can't describe. It's like you can't learn to ride a bicycle by reading a book. Um, the scooter is something. These scooters are something you can't understand without actually trying it. And, and it struck me as, you know, I didn't realize how much fun it actually was. But what also struck me. And now, now I'm an avid cyclist, so I'm very much aware of this connection or when you travel with the environment. But for instance, in something like a scooter, there's an even, in some cases, you're even more embedded in terms of riding and moving along the road. For example, um, when I came to an intersection, my instinct was to stick out my hand to signal that I was taking a left turn. But the problem is on a scooter is that I started to wobble and I almost fell off because throwing on my hand was enough to upset the balance on it. 
you know, which is very different from a bicycle where you've got two very large flywheels underneath you, you know, the, the bicycle wheels. So it's this connection with the environment. Uh, hills matter in many cases when you're on a bike, maybe less so on an e-bike. Uh, you also have, uh, you know, the potholes make a difference. So you're actually scanning and paying attention to the road. But beyond that, I think one of the most interesting things is that you start paying attention to the streetscape around you. Okay. Um, Horace, I think you just mentioned a few moments ago about how when they open bike spots and they put in bike lanes, it actually adds value to a neighborhood. The shops actually earn more. Well, one of the ideas, I guess one of the main benefits of micromobility is that it essentially reduces the friction of stopping. You know, I mean, in a car, if I'm driving in a car, uh, if I saw something interesting, I, well, first of all, I'm going so fast that I might not see it. But if I see something interesting, like say I see a new shop or a new coffee shop, if I'm on a bicycle, okay, if I'm in a car, I have to circle around, I have to find a parking spot. In most cases, I won't even bother. If I'm on a bicycle, all I have to do is stop my bicycle, find a place to lock my bike, and then I can go in. If I'm walking, I just stop and look at it. And so you can see how micromobility is sort of this middle ground between having a car and walking, um, having a little bit more friction than walking. I mean, the, the, the amount of friction you'd face, you know, for walking, all it takes is for you to stop walking, to actually look at something. Micromobility, you still have to park your scooter or park your bicycle. But still, it's far, it's orders of magnitude less friction than you have with a car. Um, so it- Yeah, and that's also a derivative of speed, right? Yeah, uh, the speed. I mean, the faster you go through something, the less you notice about your surroundings. The slower you go, the more you notice. I mean, that's, that's fairly simple. But it mm. creates different ways in which you experience the city. I actually want to take a little bit of a tangent back to something that we were talking about before, which is you talked about the the suburbs that oftentimes were built similar to a car. They have a they have a kind of a lifespan um, of you know maybe fifty or sixty years, and these declining suburb areas that have the infrastructure decaying. For me, I think about that, and I think there are there are suburbs that are further out, and oftentimes. Um, those are lower income areas. For those guys, they're oftentimes commuting and the commutes are oftentimes quite substantial. So micromobility seems like a nice solution because it's low cost, but oftentimes it's not going to be a particular, you're not going to be able to solve the same job to be done for the user and being able to do like long distance commutes, for example, with micromobility. How do you think through, through it from that perspective? Well, I think we talked about earlier and I'm not sure all the suburbs can be saved. Many of these suburbs, the way they're constructed, have a definite life. And a lot of these places are falling apart. But if you think it from a city perspective, a lot of these suburbs, it doesn't. And the reason why they're in decay and may not come back is that it, you know, it's just like an old car. In many cases, it's not worth fixing. And, and, and this is something I, I think that we need to introduce into the micromobility debate when we're talking about the suitability of micromobility for certain areas and its capacity to change things is that the value of a place to a city often is about the amount of tax revenues it derives from a place, right? So 
if we look at the amount of tax revenues that a city derives from a, say, a suburban area, you know, the property taxes on the houses versus what it derives from an urban area, it's orders of magnitude difference. Uh, I believe there's a consulting firm called Urban 3, and uh, they've done some very interesting work in calculating the amount of uh, tax revenues these uh, cities derive per square meter in various things. And, And you'll see there's this clear thing where a city derives so much more tax revenues from a square block of the inner city than it does even for a suburban area uh, for a, say, a big box superstore. In fact, if you look at in terms of pure economic productivity, inner cities are so much more productive than these burbs. It's so much more productive than these massive Walmart and whatnot, big box superstores. So I think ultimately for a lot of these cities, it comes down to a, a very cold calculation is it worth fixing or not? It's interesting because I've been thinking about what are the places that will benefit the most from micromobility and have the biggest impact. And in thinking through that, it struck me that probably the places that will benefit the most from micromobility are the places that are already great for walking, great for cycling, already have that infrastructure in place for walking and cycling. So so in a way, the impact of micromobility is not going to suddenly turn things upside down, make these suburbs suddenly more desirable than the cities. I think you'll still see that gradient. What I see is um, the possibility in certain suburban areas of creating, I guess, towns or villages that are suddenly more viable than they were before. Hmm. Asa, is there any other questions that you have, Horace? Um well, first, I'd like to I'd like to invite Winston to come to to Micromobility California if you if if he can make it, um, and and join us there as 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 well as everyone else. But um, I I think it's worth paying attention to this aspect of social change that's possible. I find that very difficult to predict, given the the complexity of social behavior but uh, but it, it's fascinating still to think what can change well micromobility is really interesting because we talked earlier about it being very context specific we talked about it being very local and the most difficult thing to predict about micromobility because we're not talking about these massive networks of scale is that we're at this very moment we're seeing i don't know tens of thousands of experiments in micromobility happening all over the globe, okay? You have it in India, you have it in China, you have it in Europe, you have it in America, and each one is going to be done in a slightly different way. So if you have these tens of thousands of experiments going on, a lot of people are going to think of different solutions and different ways around how micromobility can can actually be used and different approaches. Now, what what I find interesting is that ultimately, because of this democratization of mobility, but because it enables these um, complex decentralized systems in terms of you know how we actually link up a city, how we get around a city, we may end up with much more optimal solutions. Uh, there there was a uh, interesting uh, the sociologist some years back 
she won the Nobel Peace Prize. Her name was uh, for economics, I believe, uh, Eleanor Ostrom. And she had this notion that uh, smart complexity, so you have these complex systems that often appear chaotic, are often better than dumb, simplistic systems. Now, a dumb, simplistic system would be, for instance, a car, a city that's designed around binary modes of transportation. You have public transit and you have cars, and that's it. And much better is a very smart or intelligent self-organizing system where you have an incredible heterogeneity of modes of transport. You have, uh, you have subways, you have buses, but you also have cars. Uh, but you have all those different modes of micromobility with individuals making their own decisions, with people trying to come up with better solutions on how to get from A to B, how to get from home to school, um, home to work. I guess the most interesting aspect for me is all these experiments and what's going to happen going forward. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's clear to me that the, this isn't a binary solution Micromobility is very much a spectrum of alternatives, which individually evolve very rapidly. Obviously, these vehicles will, will, will sort of mutate and begin to, to explore niches individually. That's what we're seeing already with scooters, which are only one year in existence uh, as a mode. Uh, they were preceded by electric bikes and electric scooters uh, meaning, I should say, electric uh, moped-type scooters, vehicles, and and potentially three- or four-wheeled vehicles coming afterwards as well, and maybe even more that we cannot imagine. It's very similar to what we saw in the proliferation of compute devices. We, you know, Computation was not something that was thought of as portable, um, and once it's portable, it became ubiquitous. So to me, this has just been a recurring theme. Uh, but anyway, that's um, it's yeah, very exciting. It is excellent. Well, thank you so much, Winston. It's been uh, it's been wonderful to get your perspective on all of this. Well, thank you, Oliver. Uh, thank you, Horace. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll see. And uh, I'd, I'd really love to come to. I found Copenhagen so interesting. I'd really come love to come out and see the uh, follow up in San Francisco. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>